This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Here at the Year Ahead Summit at Bloomberg, uh, WW, the company formerly known as Weight Watchers, continuing to undergo a transformation, really thanks to the company's president and CEO, Mindy Grossman, and her team. They're getting a big brand relaunch in 2019, a marketing campaign featuring its third largest shareholder and board member, Oprah Winfrey. I caught up with Mindy uh, at the summit to talk about brands with purpose and how this brand transformation differs from the brand she am- impacted before. We're talking about brands like HSN, Nike, Ralph Lauren, and more. Listen up. You know, on one hand, there are a lot of similarities to transformation, particularly of a legacy brand that has had such meaning to people for so many years. Um, And this idea of moving forward but retaining the beauty of that legacy and what the brands stand for. So there's similarities. The difference is that this is not an exercise in only a financial return on impact, although that is critical. The reality is if we accomplish what we believe we want to accomplish and what has to be accomplished, the return on human equity will be so powerful that it becomes not just the fact that we've got permission to be more in people's lives. We feel we have a responsibility to do what it is we're trying to do. And it goes back to the comment you made about solving the paradox. Um, And it really heightened to me. I was in Italy at the Global Wellness Summit, and they presented the white paper on how the global wellness economy has gone from $3.7 trillion to $4.2 trillion, and everybody was clapping. Uh, but the reality is there's not a single marker anywhere in the world that shows we're getting healthier. And if we do not do something, for example, today's millennial will be the most obese generation in history, and today's two-year-old has a better chance of not being healthy than being healthy. And then if you look at the gap in underserved communities, it's that much more dramatic. So as a culture and as an organization, you know, this evolution for us of not abdicating our position as the best healthy eating and weight loss program on the planet, because that's really important, but really giving people much more of an ecosystem to help them sustainably lead better lives and change that trajectory. The word purpose comes up a lot with Mindy, that every corporate decision is put through a purpose filter and that people crave purpose. So this underlines everything that you do. It seems. Well, I think does it? not only does it underline everything we do, I think any brand today that does not truly believe that there has to be a purpose at their core and it has to be relevant for your brand, I think is going to have a challenge having long-term sustainable success because you want to attract talent. Uh, You want to retain talent. You want to create meaning with consumers. And, you know, I've spoken a lot how the brands of the future are going to have to marry technology plus meaning to help people lead more connected, fulfilled lives. Um, and I started writing on building uh, a culture of purpose. Um, and you have to define what that is for your brand. And, you know, for, for our company, it's very obvious. Um, and so everyone that works there not only feels they have a job, but they really are having an impact on people's lives. 
And it really makes a very big difference, especially at our underlying, you know, base. We're a technology platform company, and we're in the same fight for talent that everybody else is. And that factor and that purpose factor, and even especially moving forward, is going to be very important. Last year when we talked, I think at the end, I was like, what are the things that are on your mind? You talked about talent acquisition. And I know you are increasingly becoming a technology company and competing for those software engineers that everybody else wants. So tell me a little bit about that. That's still number one on your mind? Absolutely. Yeah. So what we've done over the course of the the last year, first of all, table stakes is that there has to be exciting, interesting technology that people are working on, right? Um, And we're doing so many new things, and our brand has a different element of relevancy today. But we're really getting out there, and we are a technology platform experience company with this human-centric overlay. Um, Last week, we just opened our new offices in San Francisco, and we're making sure our environment and, you know, we're attracting talent, and we have room to double our staff out there. Um, and so we did a big event out there and we'll continue to do that. Um, we've done a lot of work around us as an employer brand to get people to understand who we are today and recruiting on college campuses. But I would say the real important thing is culture and purpose married to exciting technology because it's a war for talent in these areas. Right. Um, But we're doing exciting things around everything from data to AI to the utilization of technology, and that's how the word of mouth is attracting. And then I'd say, lastly, diversity. We have an unusually diverse technology and product team, and that attracts talent. All right, of course, that was President and CEO of WW, Mindy Grossman. I want to point out, Jason, I was reading in uh, last night this morning, J.P. Morgan, their analyst came out this week, said the company's valuation is significantly decoupled from its earnings growth reality, pointing out the company's 20% earnings growth opportunity in 2019 and 2020. Because the stock rallied when Oprah got involved, rallied when Mindy got involved, has had quite a run, but it has pulled back uh, significantly from its highs. And uh, this analyst is saying, it's undervalued. But it was fun to talk to people after we had our conversation. I'm sure you're experiencing this where people are saying she's on to something, building these platforms that are hopefully sticky and that become a part of a person's life, Absolutely. you know, where they check it constantly, just like we all check whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, what have you. Well, listen, it's a lifestyle brand for sure. If I should say, if they can make it a lifestyle brand, yes, it's a whole new world. It's an entirely yep. new world because Game changer. it's not something you do; it's who you are. And uh, we've talked a lot about that when it comes to fitness and wellness, and and that does seem to be uh, the holy grail. All right. Well. Anyone who listens to this program on any sort of regular basis knows I love talking about private equity. I've been looking at it for a long time. Antoine Drian, he is an old friend, chairman of Triago, founder of Palico, really at the heart of private equity, fundraising especially. We've talked a lot over the years, Antoine. It's great to see you uh, here in New York. You're all over the world. We're really uh, glad you stopped by to see us here uh, on Bloomberg Business Week. So, what is the state of private equity right now? Money seems to still be pouring in uh, to this asset class. Is that going to go on for a while? 
I think it will go on for a while. I guess the, 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 the major reason is that most of the investors up there are now understanding that private equity delivers great returns and is actually not that risky, at least as long as you make the right choices when it comes to general partners. Right. Uh, they also understand that liquidity is not that bad. You know that there is a pretty active secondary market now. And all of this means that there is more, uh, there are more people looking at this asset class and investing in it. And so how much do you worry about that sort of wall of, that, that wall of capital, you know, the dry powder, it's measured in trillions of dollars uh, at this point. How much pressure does that put on these managers to put money to work? Well, depending on who you're talking about. Obviously, private equity is, just, it's, is not just one, uh, you know, strategy, and you have many strategies uh, in the asset class. Some people do feel pressure uh, mm-hmm. in some areas. You have like 100 groups for one asset. I mean, obviously, these people may lose some discipline when it comes to buying. But I think that overall, uh, people in this asset class know what they're doing. And if you look at how many casualties there has been after Lehman, actually, it's not that bad. Probably QE saved a lot of, right. uh, you know, a lot of money to everyone. But at the end of the day, it's, it's actually, it wasn't a bloodbath. And so as you talk to these managers, you know, I just spent some time with John Gray. We're going to hear more from him later in the show, uh, president of Blackstone. You know, talking about valuations, at least on the public side, starting to come off a little, <laughs> excuse me, a little bit. What do you see uh, in terms of valuations and deal-making as we head into 2019? Uh, it looks like they're, they're pretty stable uh, right now, at least uh, here in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, they may actually go down a little bit if, if markets are, are going down. Uh, there is some sort of correlation, obviously, uh, not a high one, but there is one. Uh, so, so we'll see. But I think it's still you know, fairly valued at this point. And in terms of where the money is coming from and going into these private equity funds, how has the mix changed over the years? You know, public pensions for, were for a long time. U.S. public pensions were the biggest contributor or, or the biggest investor. Um, sovereign wealth has come on. Pretty strong family offices have come on. Strong. How is that mix changing? It's now a lot of very different investors. Uh, when I started 26 years ago in this business, most of the people were in this country. And you were right. I mean, you're right. Most of them were pension funds. Today, you have investors pretty much all over the world. Uh, there are 15,000 of, of them now. Uh, and, of course, the family piece is now a big one. And it will, mo- it will most probably grow. And, and the third, third big space that could grow is actually the retail uh, investors. I mean, there, are, there will be more retail investors uh, in this asset class. I'm so glad you brought that up because that seems to be the holy grail for especially some of these bigger managers, the big publicly traded guys like a Blackstone and a KKR, uh, a Carlisle. How realistic is that, that we really will see a robust retail effort uh, in private equity? I think it is very realistic. The question is, is when? Uh, but is, is PE a great asset class? Yes. If it works for institutions, why shouldn't it work for uh, you know, everyone on the street? I think that everyone is a candidate for 8 10% a year returns, right? Whether you're a huge pension fund or, or Joe Schmo on the street, I mean, you don't, you don't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so there, is, there will be demand. Now the question is more uh, liquidity, right? I think that's, that's the right. big, big question. Uh, when you're a pension fund and you have money forever almost, uh, you can take the risk of being you know, locked for 10 years. 
if you're a person and you could need the money in a few weeks, then there's an issue. So, I mean, obviously, I think that retail investors won't put you know, everything in this asset class, but at least there should be some, a better liquidity mechanism, even better than today. It's not bad, but better right. than today. Uh, to make sure that these people can actually use private equity uh, for their own account. So 30 seconds left and maybe a, a little bit less. Are we going to see a big retail push in 19 or is it further out than that? I think it's not 19. I mean, some people thought it would be 17, 18. I'm not sure it's going to be 19, but it's growing and it should be, you know, maybe 20 or 21. I'm talking about the big wave, right. not, not, not this thing. Not the trickle. No. The big wave. Yes. Uh, Antoine Duran, chairman of Triago, founder of Palico, based in Paris, but here with me in our Bloomberg headquarters in New York. Always great to catch up with you. You don't get a lot of chances to listen to that song uh, these days, but snacks, they're a big business. Mondelez CEO Dirk Vanderput is joining me here at the Year Ahead Summit. Dirk, great to be with you. You were upstairs uh, participating uh, in a panel uh, part of the year ahead summit so let's talk about snacks uh, a little bit we are sitting here in the bloomberg uh, pantry snacks all around us but it feels like we're more conscious these days about what we're putting into our bodies even when it comes to snacks so how do you deal with that as a snack maker well um you need to offer the variation that the consumer wants um, it is clear that the consumer is much more conscious about what they eat and uh, it, in fact it is is not so that the same consumer does always the same thing they right. do different things it depends of the moment and how they feel and so on and um, as a company that obliges us to go from uh, very healthy snacks to more indulgent oriented snacks and and how's business right now globally? Where do you see kind of the, the pockets of opportunity? You know, that's been sort of a big question at the year ahead writ large uh, is, you know, as, the, as we get longer and longer into this bull market, as we've had a very healthy uh, global economy and certainly here in the U.S., uh, where do you see the, the biggest opportunities around the world? Um, I would say the longer term... Um the emerging markets are clearly where, where most of the opportunity lies in, in the snacking business. Sh short term, that's still the case, but I would say, for instance, North America, the markets that we're in, biscuits, chocolate, uh, candy, and so on, are showing some, some pretty good growth, much better than in the previous years. So oh. you can feel the confidence from the consumer and, and, and the fact that there is a little bit of momentum. So at this stage, it's, it's developing and developed markets. Both are doing quite well. And how do you see that playing going into 19? It feels like that's the other big existential question is, does that consumer confidence play through uh, 19? Or are we starting to see signs of maybe some caution? Uh, at this moment, we don't see those signs. I, I feel a bit more caution on the business side. Most business people are a bit more worried about uh, what could come. But from a consumer's perspective, we, we see the momentum continue. Um, there, there's uh, uh, signs around the world that, that the momentum in other countries also is, is continuing. So I, I don't ex expect, from a consumer's perspective, that 19 will be a year where there's a, a, a big change in their attitude. Uh, I, I don't see it at the moment. So speaking globally, you obviously see opportunities both for consumers but also to build your business, maybe expand your business. We've talked a lot today about maybe some valuations uh, coming down. 
Does that present a buying opportunity for you? Maybe pick up some assets uh, here and there? Um, yeah, yes, of course. Um, our strategy is to, to be uh, the, the biggest snacking player around the world. And as you can imagine, we still have a lot of white spaces where we can do that. We do that through a combination of launching our own products mm-hmm. and trying to grow like that. But if the right opportunity presents itself at the right financial conditions, and, and we always try to take a disciplined approach, of course, then we will certainly do that. Yes. Are there specific areas that make more sense to buy rather than launch? Um, yes. Uh, <coughs> if, if you are seeing uh, something that is uh, a strong position, if there's mm-hmm. a company that has a strong position in the market, a strong brand, growing nicely, it would be probably very expensive to go against that brand. Right. And if you would be able to partner or buy, uh, that would be the best solution, to my opinion. Kellogg, for instance, is getting out of some of its businesses. Is that somewhere you, w- you might shop? Um, we, we look at any opportunity. I don't particularly think that this one's seen our biscuit position already right. in North America, that that's immediately going to be something for us. But uh, we will evaluate uh, everything that, that, that goes on, for sure. And as you think about your business, obviously a question that comes to every CEO, especially a global CEO, is cost of shipping, especially given the trade world, the new trade world, shall we say, <laughs> that we are uh, living in of late. How is that affecting your cost and, and ultimately your bottom line? Um, it, is, uh, it is affecting our costs. And the consequence of that is that we will have to price a little bit more than normal. The, the effect we see going into 19 as it relates to inflation on our input cost is, is a bit higher than it was in the previous years. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, the, con- the consumer confidence is there. So increasing prices a little bit, I think, is, is doable at this stage. Um, um, we will uh, not be affected in our bottom line. Um, our bottom line next year will be uh, not that aggressive because we have decided that we will do more investment in our brands and innovation and in our route to market. So, so we're a little bit in an investment mode next year, but that's not because of our cost. That's because of the investments that we're making. So you have, uh, you've had a fascinating career. You worked at uh, Group Danone. You worked at Coca-Cola. You worked at McCain Foods up in uh, Canada. As you look, as you think about that experience, you look at where we are, you know, in the in the world right now. What's the biggest opportunity, kind of across the world of food? The the biggest opportunity or the winner will be the the, the company that can understand and accompany the consumer where she or he is going. There's so much change taking place, and, and you refer to it, that it's become the, the old recipe doesn't work anymore. Hmm. One big global brand that is uh, sold all over the world. Uh, I don't. I don't believe in that recipe anymore. So you need to adapt, and you need to be on top of the consumer and, and quickly change with the consumer needs. The company that can do that. I think will win. And do you see like a, a cannabis or something like that? You know, being something that you might be interested in certainly seems to be getting a lot of attention. <laughs> well, we, we certainly will look at it. Yeah. We, we're not not gonna say no, but at the same time. We make Oreos, we make Chips Ahoy. You will not see a cannabis-infused Oreo coming to the market. Well, I'm sure there, we have some disappointed listeners out there uh, <laughs> hearing that news. All right. Uh, Dirk Vanderput, thank you so much. Chief Executive Officer of Mondelez, based in Deerfield, Illinois, but here with us at Bloomberg Headquarters as part of the Year Ahead Summit. Great to spend some time with thank you. We really Jason. appreciate it. It's hockey night tonight. Yeah, we're talking 
Uh, really? What? I know. Go figure, right? Wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? Um, perfect guest to do that with. Don Cornwell is with us. He's partner at PJT Partners, participating in our Bloomberg Gearhead Summit here at Bloomberg Headquarters. In fact, he's going to be part of a panel later today on the high stakes of sports betting. Nice to have you here with us. Good to be here. There is so much going on. Where do you want to start? What do you find most interesting when you look at the sports w- world? Is it sports media? Is it esports? Is it... Gaming. Oh, man, there's so many different things. <laughs> what do you, well, so I mean, right now, esports and gaming are the two areas I'm spending the most time in. Uh, but the convergence of all these things, the media companies, the gaming companies, the leagues, you're seeing just so much activity. So let's talk about esports for a second because sure. Jim Coulter, you know, gave us sort of his view of the world for 2019 earlier this morning. One thing he didn't actually get to talk to the audience about, but I talked to him about on the sidelines, was esports is a highly investable area. Yeah. Where's the money to be made there at this moment? A lot of different places. So you're seeing lots of capital come into the teams themselves, the franchises. Right. And I think what Activision Blizzard... First of all, the idea of like an eSports team, like these are teams of people playing video games. These are teams. These are just like the New York Jets and the Giants and the Knicks. These are teams with professional athletes who have contracts and... They have schedules, and they, 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 they have matches that are televised. And, and then people watch them playing. People watch them live, yeah. uh, and people watch them streaming and on TV. Uh, you know, this past summer, I went to the Activision Blizzard uh, Overwatch Finals out at Barclays. Sold out. Yeah. I was talking to a buddy of mine who works for the Nets. He was telling me it's the loudest he's ever seen the building. Louder than a Jay-Z concert, louder than when the Nets were in the playoffs. It was the loudest he's ever seen. So how big does this market get? What are we talking, and how quickly does it ramp up? I think it is, um, it's global in nature, right? So just to put it in perspective, I just saw a stat this morning. Fortnite has now 200 million users. Right? <laughs> wow. Think about that. That yeah. game is not that old, right. right? It is moving at a pace where it is approaching with nothing else in the, in the world of entertainment. There's no other thing that looks like that, right? And you've got people of all demographics. I think that's the big difference. When you think about video games, it's... People who play sports, who like video games, it's professional athletes, it's musicians, it's the guy who never leaves his basement. It's all of them, right? It's somebody in America, it's Is somebody in Asia. Women? women? Well, no. If you look at the, the, the Fortnite numbers, there's a lot of uh, females who play. Uh, right. and that's what's got people very excited about it. So the numbers are huge, so it could get very large. Now, it's going to take some well, time. what's large? What, what to you? Give me a number. Do you have a number that's so, in your head? So, so here's one way of thinking about it. Um, people are raising capital for these franchises now at valuations, 100 million, 150 million, 200 million. These things are one or two years old. Yeah. These are brand new entities. They're babies. Put yeah. that in context with an NFL franchise that might be worth two or three billion dollars. That's 50 or 60 years old. Right. right? It's taken them that long. So the trajectory is just, you know, a, a different level. All right. So you led us right there. Let's talk about valuations sure. in, in more traditional uh, pro sports, as it were. As you look around right now, NFL ratings back up again sure. after a tough year uh, last year amid a lot of politics and, and uh, various controversies. Valuations stabilized, growing in. Let's just start with the NFL. Sure. Where are Still we? growing. Still growing. Uh, people like to talk negatively about the Carolina Pan- Panthers valuation. Still a record. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, we sold. It Buffalo wasn't B- as big as maybe thought. It was just it as big be. as people reported. But, but, but it's still a record. It's still a record. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of money. Right? Right. David Tepper wrote a very, very large check yeah. to own an asset. Uh, and so I think there's still lots of upside. Both on the broadcast side, it, it, what's happening is the NFL and other leagues are just being more creative. Right? So they're thinking about, okay, how do I chop up my packages to get streaming? How do I think about leveraging an Amazon when I'm talking to Fox? Right? So over time, we'll see uh, lots more 
improvement there, but also there's the data element. And I think that's where you're starting to see some, some, some headlines around the value of that data. But with things like football, I mean, there's been so much controversy about the injuries, and you see younger – you're like – are you rolling your eyes there? I mean, is it a case that eSports replaces, like, traditional football? You don't see that happening. No, it's additive. It's additive. Look, mm. if, if you're a 300-pound guy with really quick feet, what else are you going to do? Right, that's the sport to play is football. Right, there's going to be people who want to play football because the money's there. Right, right. It, it, you know, will you see certain people not be allowed to play as kids? Yeah, sure. Right. So there is some fear around concussion around that front, but I think there's still going to be plenty of athletes who want to play it, and we're still going to watch it. I mean, look at boxing. Yeah. Right? Boxing and UFC. Yeah. That's as barbaric as it gets. Right. People fighting right. in a ring. Right. right. You look at the numbers. It's huge. It's yeah. massive. Right. So I, I still think football will be it's interesting. So Jerry Jones says Dallas Cowboys are worth ten billion dollars. You buy it? I mean, if he was trying to sell it, I'd like to sell it for ten billion. You think yeah. somebody would pay ten or close to it? It's, it look, th- that is a very unique brand. Yeah, uh, and he's got a business model that's very different than everybody else in the NFL, uh, and he makes a lot of money. So who knows? Right? Who knows? So before we let you go, what uh, what's the one league where the valuations are growing the fastest from your estimation? Outside of esports, yeah. Uh, I am the NBA yeah. is still you, you're looking at numbers. I mean, if you think about what yeah. you know, we got you know, Mark Lazary and West Indians came in for, and what their, their valuation is now. Blitzer and Harris with the Sixers. It, I mean, the numbers are. Ten yeah. seconds. Tiger Woods. He's back. That discovery deal. He's back. He's back. He's That's back. pretty big, right? He's back. Yeah. Cool. Is that the best Definitely thing that's back. happened to golf? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a game changer. Nobody like him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Don Cornwell, partner Fine. at PJT Partners. Always good to see you. Thank you Thank for you. participating in the Year Ahead Summit. And thanks for stopping by to see us. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on a busy Wednesday afternoon at Bloomberg World Headquarters Year Ahead Summit. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So it is time for the drive to the close. And for that, we're going to go back to a conversation I had earlier today, yeah. uh, Carol, here at the Year Ahead Summit. John Gray, the president and chief operating officer of Blackstone, newly minted. He took that job uh, earlier this year. He was a real estate phenom of sorts, really built that business. It's the only place he's ever worked, Blackstone. Started his career straight yeah. out of University of Pennsylvania uh, and really worked his way up and uh, has been quite successful. And, you know, we talked a lot about the investing environment, and we started on the topic that is on everyone's mind, uh, volatility. Here's what he had to say. We're certainly in a world with more volatility. The data would say that. And I don't think we should be shocked by that. We've had a great run in asset prices for a long period of time. Volatility had been fairly low. Uh, the Fed has begun to raise rates. We've got some trade tensions out there. We have some issues in emerging markets. We have some issues in Europe as well. You know, oil prices have come down sharply. I I think it's natural that you have this kind of volatility at some point during a cycle. So I don't think that's necessarily bad. For our business, this is generally a good thing because if asset prices keep grinding higher, that's hard to find opportunity. 
And so if you have a business model like we do, where you get capital tied up for long periods of time, you have discretion. When things drop in price, you can move quickly. And because you're not short-term financed or the capital can't be called away, you're not forced to sell. So for us, we look at this and say, wow, there are lots of assets around the world that have been repriced. We've got close to $100 billion of dry powder. This could be a more interesting investment environment going forward. Help us understand the investing environment versus the economic uh, environment, because obviously they're interrelated, but not necessarily super correlated, it feels like right now. Yes. So I'd say on the economic side, people are obviously a little bit nervous given this volatility. I would say if you look down at the numbers, they're still pretty good. Consumer confidence is at an 18-year high. Small business confidence is at, I think, an all-time high. Unemployment's obviously very low. Corporate earnings have been strong. Um, And what we're seeing with our companies is generally pretty good. So that's positive. I think the issue, back to my earlier comments, is as the labor market tightens, the Fed naturally is going to move towards raising rates. And that is going to put pressure on multiples. And that's really the shift we're Mm -hmm. facing right now. So it's very possible you could see a decoupling where economic growth continues to be pretty good, but because wages go up, that impacts companies' bottom lines, and because multiples come under pressure, valuations don't grow at the same rate that the economy may be. So you have a stronger economy, less growth in valuation, and therefore, as an investor, you have to become much more selective in how you deploy capital. Right. As you look across the world. Let's talk about Europe for for one second, because Brexit, obviously, I feel like every day there are more and different headlines. Italy remains an opportunity. Europe is a place where you guys have invested heavily across uh, a lot of different asset classes. What's the opportunity or is there an opportunity there right now? So interestingly, on Europe, I'd almost say the opposite. I'd say growth in Europe is challenged and growth is challenged because if you think about what leads to economic growth, you want an environment where there's more certainty, people have confidence. Today, with what's happening in Brexit, what's happening in Italy, what's happening with some of the more extreme political parties, it's making people more cautious to invest, to hire. And so I think that translates into slower growth in Europe. Now, you might say, gosh, then I don't want to invest in Europe. But then you have to say the good news is rates are likely to stay lower for longer in Europe. And there are fewer people who are enthused about investing in Europe. So we, in the last six weeks announced two large deals in the UK. I just said Brexit slowed growth, but we were able to buy these arches under the rail network in the UK. We were were buying a big convention and arena business in Birmingham, UK, because in both cases, we felt like we were able to price in a lower growth environment. So as investors, you have to look at the matrix both ways. It's not just, is the economic climate favorable? It's what price do I have to pay for that? So it's possible today, and I would say overall at Blackstone, Europe actually looks more favorable because there's not a consensus that it's the place to invest. You guys are the biggest in that business of backing hedge funds, fund of hedge funds. It feels like we're in a state of existential crisis in hedge funds. Is that what you see, or what's the story? Well, I I think the the biggest challenge is the traditional long-short hedge fund business is is struggling in the equity markets, that the idea of of paying higher fees um, and and, and hedging a 
big chunk of market exposure and then providing significant outperformance, that that is hard as the market gets more and more efficient. So what I think that means is the hedge fund business very much survives, but you see more of the quants and, and other strategies that are seeing more capital flowing into them where they have moats around their business and are able to deliver differentiated returns. I think the other thing you're seeing in the hedge fund world in our business is you do some other semi-liquid things, Illinois receivables, claims in certain other companies, bonds, things that um, you can get excess return without taking undue risk. But I do think sort of the pure long-short equity business, some of the activist guys, because there were so many people who went into that space, um, have seen some pressure. But long-term, I think the hedge fund business survives, but it just continues to evolve. And that was my conversation, part of my conversation, Carol, with John Gray, the president and chief operating officer at Blackstone, the world's largest firm of its kind, managing all sorts of alternative assets, almost half a trillion dollars they've got under management. Well, this is why you love to talk to folks at Blackstone, because there's so much money and they're investing it in different ways. So they have a real handle on kind of where investors are finding interest, where money is flowing. The other thing I thought that was interesting that he, that he talked about with you was this whole idea of repricing um, and valuations, lower valuations, and that can create an interesting investment environment. People who've been on the sidelines waiting to come in now say, hey, this is a better price. I can, I can maybe make some money off of this. Well, now. and I really was intrigued by what he said about this decoupling between sort of valuations and the economic data, whereby simply the valuations come down, but there's still growth to be had. And look, that is magic for private equity. We know that. And right. there are obviously a lot of opportunities. And I go back to, you know, what Jim Coulter shared with us at the top of the year ahead show uh, this morning about the various places he's looking, including esports, yeah. uh, including, you know, he had a, a riff on marijuana, you know, all sorts of things. Did you say he had a whiff of marijuana? He had a riff. Oh, okay. A riff. I'm just checking. A riff on. A riff on. You know, the year ahead, we, you know, we do yeah. things mm. in a different way. Looking around way. the corner. What are you going <laughs> to see there? You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, certainly people have their preferences, their opinions, shall we say, about public transit. And the man sitting before me hears them all. He's Andy Byford. He runs the MTA here uh, in New York City. Andy, thanks so much. We are having this conversation ahead of the conversation we're going to have uh, upstairs at the, at the Year Ahead Summit. So I'm excited to get some time with you ahead of that. I got to tell you. Your job must be pretty tough. I'm not sure you get a lot of calls that say, my subway ride was amazing. Thank you so uh, not much. Not too many, Jason. Not too many. I mean, what is nice is that uh, occasionally it's on, when I uh, ride on the subway and I do it every day, that's how I get to and from home. People do say, you know, uh, you're doing a great job or, or keep up the great work. Don't leave. Please keep at it. Right. Um, which I'm always humbled by. I'm always humbled by uh, how gracious New Yorkers are in what I know is a, a subject of very great importance to them. It's a, it obviously is a subject of uh, great importance for sure, and everybody's got, as I said, uh, their opinions. You know, when you talk to people and you set out your priorities based on what you hear from them, you know, what's the single thing you go back and say, this is the, this is the thing we're going to fix first? Sure. Number one priority, I'm crystal clear on this, and this goes for buses, for subways, and for paratrans, all three of equal importance. 
number one priority is to provide safe, reliable, punctual, clean transit. So, you know, there's a lot of other things that we need to attend to, but job one is you pay to get from A to B. You want that to happen reliably, predictably, and on time. So that will always be number one priority. Uh, and obviously the key thing is to do that safely. Right. And how big of a challenge is that given the infrastructure uh, that you're dealing with? Let's just you know, be candid. This is not a it's new huge. system. <laughs> no, it's huge. And I knew that when I walked into this, Jason. I mean, I'm used to dealing with old uh, transit infrastructure. I started my career 30 years ago, just about, uh, on the Tube, the London Underground, which is actually even older than right. the New York system. It's the oldest system in the world. But massive investment has been, un- has been uh, uh, expended on the Tube system, and it, it looks completely transformed now. So that both inspires me and, um, and also uh, sh- shows just what needs to be done. Here, we are dealing with equipment that my my miracle workers as i call them the 50,000 men and women of transit they are in some cases using 100 year old signal frames now these this equipment is safe obviously we we keep it safe but it's increasingly unreliable and it is increasingly difficult to maintain and it's also um it, you, you, we we even make our own parts it's that old the equipment manufacturers have gone out of business so it is a daily challenge we will not give up on it the big uh, issue and you know you talk about the year ahead is to build the case for fast forward the complete top to bottom modernization of transit Uh, we have a great plan we just need the money how much money do you need? We need billions, you know. I mean, yeah. and at the end of the day, I've said in public, it's around about forty billion, and we're still finalising the uh, the cost, but we may be able to pair that in. But let's just take that as an as an example. Forty billion dollars, a lot of money to you and me, but not if you think that that's a ten year program. Divide that by ten, it's around four billion dollars a year, split between the state, the city, and the feds. Uh, and that would move us from a state of emergency, which we're currently in. The governor rightly put us in state of emergency, given all the reliability problems. We could go from state of emergency to state of the art in less than 4,000 days, 10 years. Uh, I think most New Yorkers would say that would be $4 billion a year well spent, particularly when you think of the uh, U.S. economy, the uh, state economy, where literally trillions of dollars for the, for the, uh, the country right. are pulled in. $4 billion to keep New York, New York at the forefront. I think that's worth it. So among those three big constituencies, those three funding uh, elements, uh, who's the most reluctant? Well, I mean, we've yet to finalize the case, so I'm not hearing any pushback. Yeah. I think just about everyone I talk to, be that city officials, be that state officials, um, we're, we're beginning to engage with the feds now. I think the good news is most people get it. Most people know that New York can't see this slow uh, decline, this decline in um, reliability. Most people understand that New Yorkers are rightly frustrated and fed up with the fact that their service isn't where it should be. I like to paint a picture of, you know, I've, I've traveled extensively in the world. I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Singapore. I've been on these world-class systems. Why can't we have that? We absolutely can. And the fact that London turned it around shows me that we can too. So I need to make the case. You don't, you don't get billions by going out with a begging bowl. You have to be way more sophisticated. We are putting together a compelling economic impact analysis that I think will be irresistible. Andy Byford, you are the president of the New York City Transit Authority, uh, joining me here on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.